and welcome to the Flying Tortuga Brothers podcast. I'm your co-host, Carl Stoveland, along with Shannon Torrance. Hi, how you doing, Carl? And today we are fortunate enough to be in the Venice, Florida galleries and darkroom of Clyde Butcher. Clyde, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I always like to talk about photography. Well, you've got a real, not just a fan of your work, but I spent 20 years working in labs, so we can get down in the down in the dirt on that stuff. That'd be a lot of fun. What I'm going to do right now is talk to our listeners a little bit about what the Flying Tortuga Brothers project is, and then we'll lead into a little bit of a conversation. So Shannon and I are both artists living and working in Lake Worth, Florida. This year, we decided to apply for the National Parks Arts Foundation Artists in Residence for the Dry Tortugas, which is on Loggerhead Key. It takes place every September. It's for the entire month. And the beauty of the Loggerhead Key Residence is you need two artists because it's a remote, out-of-the-way location. They basically only come by with the National Park boats once or twice a week. There's no internet, so it was going to force us to really spend our time working on our art, which, by the way, I'm a photographer and a little bit of a painter and a filmmaker. Shannon is an excellent painter, and the world's going to find out just how good a poet he is. He's really great. So we were not accepted for 2019. We put together our application rather quickly at the last minute, mostly because Shannon didn't have anybody to go on the trip with them. And then when we became friends through my I Am Lake Worth project, things started to click and we decided to go ahead and take a shot at it. And with how quickly we did it, I'm not surprised that we didn't get this year, but we spent an entire month from when we put in the application to when the announcement was thinking about neither one of us would say, if we get accepted on the island, we kept walking around telling our wives when we go to the island. So we were pretty well locked in that we were going to do this and talking about what our plans would be for the time while we were there. So when we weren't selected, we decided, all right, loggerhead 2020 or bust. And we decided we would make a large social media presence to go with our application. So we're doing a documentary film. We have this podcast and a blog so we're building on that over the next year to get ourselves ready to be accepted for 2020. Yeah and I think it's important to add um, here that our work is going to be sort of environmentally driven Um, so my paintings especially will be um, about celebrating um, nature and undisturbed nature and and that sort of thing. That's what the parks are all about. (laughs) Absolutely absolutely. That's why we need to keep them. Yeah I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. I just wanted to add that that's um, doing the the blog and the um, making the, the the movie and that is what we're going to do while we're on the island. So this gives them an idea of, of yeah. what we're going to bring to the table if when not, we get picked. Not only right when we get picked. Not only uh, will it be ammunition for us to get picked, but also a big piece of meat to be part of the film. The the process of getting there before we turn it into the documentary of a the environment of the island showcasing that and what it's going to be like for two artists to live off the grid and actually have to do it so so that's where the flying tortuga brothers project came from the name just came to me one day in a conversation over a couple of beers with shannon and it stuck so that's what we've been using um we're very excited to keep moving forward and the goal of the Flying Tortugas podcast was we were going to start interviewing people who had been artists in residence for the National Parks Arts Foundation, artists in residence in general, and also definitely tap into the folks that had been 
artists in residence on Loggerhead Key and start to pick their brains about what it was like, you know, some basic questions. What did you bring that you didn't need and what did you wish you had on the island? Try and get ahead of the process a little bit. So when I started reaching out to people that were my wish list of interviews, I was hoping to have 10 in the bank before we got to Mr. Clyde Butcher here. And lo and behold, the next day I got an email from Nikki saying, hey, Clyde would love to be part of your project. And here we are just a week later. I feel so blessed. I can't even believe it. Gotta get started. But, you know, to me, this sounds like a good opportunity for the park because you guys are bringing a whole package. Absolutely. Not just uh, one thing. And and there's a reason why there's two people required. There's no way you could swim to the fort. Yeah, no. I mean, you if you know, break a leg or something, you need somebody to be able to make a phone call with a satellite phone. Yeah, it's uh, it's a long ways. Yeah, it's certainly not something I'm in condition to make the swim for. Shannon, no. maybe, not me. Well, yeah, I don't want to attempt it. There's some great diving there. I've been looking at the reefs from uh, from above. Because oh. I plan to fish every morning before I paint just to see if we can sort of eat off the land as much as we can. I think that's legal. I think it is too, yeah. I've done some research, and you can definitely fish off the beach. I've seen other people doing it with kayaks as well. I'd, 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 I would fish off the long end of the island where the reef is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the, the reef is, we dove the reef a couple of years back, and it's just every kind of fish you could think of. Yeah, it sounds just so beautiful and colorful. It's, it's a special place in this crowded society. True, true, absolutely. So, yeah, we're looking forward to that. We kind of, I, in my mind, I've already sort of imagined how my day will go there. It'll be fishing in the morning and We've painting. We've both done and, that, right? Yeah. You know, we have picked up some listeners from Australia and from Western Canada. So um, Clyde is the man from a landscape photography standpoint in Florida. There is nobody else. You know, your depiction of the Everglades is just amazing. I moved here three years ago, and when I was closing my gallery and studio in New York, my friend Alex Baker pulled me aside and said, first thing you do if you're going to be in South Florida is go look up this guy, Clyde Butcher. He's <laughs> amazing. And I came into the Big Cypress Gallery with some friends, and I have a, a background in landscape photography and worked in labs for 20 years, and I have not seen work of this caliber in I can't even tell you. I mean, I love large format landscape photography, and you just blew me away the first time I saw your work. Well, it's it, Florida is not very kind to large format photographers, uh, mainly because of your exposures. Uh, like bright sun, it's one second exposures. If you have any wind, you forget it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's not... Uh, People are shooting digital. I mean, I'm shooting digital and converting because of my stroke. But, you know, I'm shooting it 200th of a second, 150th of a second. Right, because the quality you can squeeze out of the digital cameras at those ISOs compared to what we were forced to work at. I mean, I only worked on 4x5. I didn't get up to as big as 8x10. And you had a 12x20 in a canoe with four tripods. I mean, that's dedication to what you're doing. Well, sometimes I think it was kind of a stupidity. <laughs> the results I, I, are kind of neat. I love the things in life where you, you do it without asking yourself too many questions about right. why you're doing it and get these kinds of results. I mean, oh. we're, we're surrounded by your work, and these images are four foot by five foot and bigger, and they just shine. That one of... Uh, 
Cigar Orchid Key oh, over there is just one of my favorite pictures that ever. That took me nine years. Nine oh years, wow. I, I went back every year for nine years before I got the right conditions. And that's what it takes. I mean, it's there's there's luck in the timing, but there's preparation and there's dedication to doing the work. I think the dedication is the part that a lot of photographers don't have, and you see that in that's, that's, that's the a, near misses. That's not a picture you can drive up to either. It's a two-hour walk through the swamp to get there. <laughs> That's where the best pictures are, man. <laughs> I was lucky enough to uh, just visit there, uh, what, a month ago. And the water levels were high, and we were hip deep in your swamp. And uh, it's just a magical place. It, it really, people don't realize how exciting Florida is. Um, the variety of Florida. I mean, the skies are great, but there's just, uh, I measured a cypress tree that's, Circumference was bigger than the redwood trees. Good Lord. I didn't know they got that big. 53 feet. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, redwoods on the west coast, uh, where the giants are, the largest diameter is 43 feet. Mm. That's, a, that's a pretty big monster there. See, I gleaned some knowledge today already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The oldest uh, tree in the United States is in Florida. Is it Jacksonville or is the one in St. Augustine? No. Nope. It's on the Lake Wales Ridge. Okay. It's a saw pimento, 8,000 years old. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I keep learning things about Florida all the time. And, you know, that's, that's the great thing is that, um, like I said, I came here three years ago. Shannon's been here his whole life. But I had all of my experience up to when I moved here was – strip malls and everything was built between 1985 and 2000. I didn't, until I got away from the coast a little bit and finally got into the Everglades and then came down to Big Cypress, I had no idea. And those swamps, when, when you get out into them and the water, you know, it's moving. It doesn't look to you like it's moving, but it's moving gently. And the temperature on a sweltering day is just absolutely beautiful. I, I want to stay in the swamp for hours and hours and hours. Uh, actually, the, where our gallery is in Florida is probably the coolest place in Florida in the summer. Hmm. Because it's all water and trees. Mm -hmm. In the sun, it's 90. In the shade, probably 85. And the water's probably 78. Yeah. It's actually cold. People go in this in August, they go, huh, it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> so you lived there for quite a while, right? Well, yeah, um, we, we lived there full time from uh, 1993 to 2010. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were getting old. And I was driving back and forth to the darkroom here. The darkroom was here in Venice since 99. Okay. 98, 98, I think. Because we were trying to take the chemicals out of the big cypress and Hauling 300 gallons of chemistry in the road was kind of scary. Absolutely. Oh I can imagine, yeah. He couldn't break too quickly, for sure. Well, if, well it was, we had it on a trailer with a big tank, but still, if you had an accident, mm -hmm. environmental. Oh, yeah, for sure. Everglades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to just skip back one more time to the swamp because we would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to Scott Randolph, your guide right. who has taken me out four or five times now. He was my second guide. My first one was John. Um, I've had great experiences with your guides and getting out in the water. They show me and teach me something every time I'm there and give me the, the room to take the photos mm -hmm. that I want to take. It's, it's just a wonderful experience. Well, it's, to me, it's exciting that uh, people are finally picking up on what I'm doing, and uh, there's more people out doing the landscape now. 
uh, for sure following my path because they've discovered it's pretty that's right it is and <laughs> it, it took you banging that drum for a while before people understood that a yeah. swamp was a thing of beauty a long time a real long time yeah i would go to the art shows and they, people would say oh this must be the amazon no it's just down the street <laughs> <laughs> in fact we had a, a travel channel came and did a thing on us back in the swamp there and they just bought been uh, coming back from the amazon i said this is much prettier than the amazon I ever think of being <laughs> You came to Big Cypress and set up shop. How long had you been photographing here before you actually opened the gallery in Big Cypress? Uh, I've been photographing here 10 years before that. Uh, it was, I think it was in 1991. We're thinking we ought to get a, have a gallery somewhere because mm -hmm. uh, we were getting a little tired of the art, art shows. It was good. It's been a lot of work. Oh, putting up the tent and dragging the oh, stuff yeah. around every weekend. That's a oh, lot yeah. of work. But you get to meet a lot of people. That's true. Uh, you get to influence a lot of people. Uh, most galleries um, are in places where people don't get to see the work. It's very People occasionally come by. But in Big Cypress, we have hundreds of thousands of people come through there. Get That's more, right. They get more exposure to the Everglades than uh, we do in our Arm and Circle gallery mm -hmm. or here. Yeah, driving along Tamiami Trail, you get you know you have a captive audience. That's yeah. once they get on the, the trail, there's well <laughs> until you, until you get to Naples, you got nowhere to go. Well, when the park government shut down, our bathroom was the only bathroom on Tamiami Trail. Oh, you were popular. <laughs> well, that was that very popular. Of time. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So uh, when we got here to um, the gallery in Venice today, we were able to check out your dark room. Um, I'm a darkroom rat. I grew up in darkrooms, um, did my own four by five for years until I had some detached retinas and all kinds of fun things with my eyes. So I'm full-time digital now, except for I shoot an RZ67 for fun, for, for film. But loved seeing your darkroom, the horizontal and larger. I used to work on one just like that at True Color in Paramus, New Jersey, and make big murals. And I really enjoyed seeing that. It brought me back to... Yep that time it was a great uh the the, the camera part was free um everybody's going to digital and this people uh, lab i mean not a lab but a print house in miami called me up and said you want i got a camera you want a camera <laughs> so i go over there with my little toyota i said oh it's a big camera big, big. <laughs> but well, i had to order a, i had to make a light head for it mm -hmm. it's for 12 by 20 negatives but that was six thousand so, but it was a camera is as larger as the same thing. Mm -hmm. It just works backwards. That's right. Which is why my first four by five was a crown graphic and you could get a head for it with a light. Right. Project your negatives and enlarge that way. Yep. So that was the. Like a fluorescent bulb type. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, my dad used to tell stories of him and my uncle going to dances and Masonic events in the Bronx in New York when they were kids and photographing all the people dancing, running home, developing it, and then turning the camera upside uh. down and using it to make prints and going back and selling five by sevens as they were leaving the door. <laughs> That's a pretty good workflow if you can shoot, develop, and yeah. print in that yeah. kind of time frame. Well, yeah, experience the people in the Grand Canyon. There's two guys, have you heard that story about the Grand Canyon? No. It's quite a story. These two guys, and they would take pictures of on the keep on the mules starting to go down 
then they would have to run down halfway where they had their dark room. Then they have to run back up, get all done before the mules, get, mules got back. That's that's working pretty fast. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it was a lot of huffing too. Yeah, that's right. They were skinny. Oh yeah, <laughs> they, they, they would be. <laughs> it's a really interesting. Uh, two guys. So another great thing about seeing your dark room is I mentioned that I'm a lab rat. I grew up at the age of four and five, sitting on a stool in my father's dark room. My dad worked making dye transfer prints for wow. 50 years. His whole career, he made dye transfers that in was New York. A, that was a uh, lost art. A lost art. It, the process actually ended before he was ready to end his career. So by the time he was getting ready to retire, he was actually working for me in a lab that I managed doing color C prints. He's like, I could do these all day in my sleep compared to what I used to do. Yeah, making those those three the three negatives or four? Um, three positives, um, a cyan, a magenta, and a yellow yeah. laid out in register. My first summer job, and for three years, what I did was I went to the same lab as my dad, and I rolled out the prints. He would be the mat man, and a lot of the work that we did was um, – Sometimes if we were really lucky, we would get stuff that was going to be at the matter of the modern art, and it would be an Irving pen, and it would be a straight shot. But a lot of the advertising stuff was take this model from this picture and this car from this picture. Oh, and he would have to strip all that together with rubylith film Ruby-lith. and codaliths. Really, really, he was a magician at that stuff. So seeing that darkroom just brought me back to those that great time. I don't know. I think it was great at the time when I was 16 years old and getting up at four o'clock in the morning to take the bus into the city to work for 10 hours. But it really was a magic time. And I'm really glad I got to experience dye transfer because it's hard to even explain it to somebody that doesn't know. It's it's the technicolor process. But you actually burn film. and dodge each of the, each of the uh, negatives too. It was the most controllable color process and the most permanent. No. No? No. Wasn't the most permanent. Oh, well, it was touted as being the most permanent. Yellow, the yellow was terrible. Yellow is always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is black and white. Right. Black and white. Uh, in fact, I'm uh, work. We're working with a fellow in uh, Santa Fe doing uh, platinum palladium prints now. Wow, which is and, pretty exciting. Um, when Carl and I first met, I, I, I drove around the country for a year and a half with a travel trailer. And just mm-hmm. worked from place to place. And uh, um, I was in Santa Fe um, for about a month and a half working in uh, La Tierra, doing house painting stuff. But I f- fell in love and found um, Edward Curtis's work in Santa Fe. There was an Edward Curtis gallery and just fell in love with that silver gelatin print and that look. A lot of his, I think, were uh, photogravures too. Okay. Yeah. Photogravure is a technique that. I wish people would have more respect for. I mean, it's uh, probably one of the most permanent techniques. Is that on glass? The pictures that are no, no, no. It's it's basically a uh, etching. Okay. You take a brass plate and you expose it. It makes little holes in the brass, and you fill it with ink. Then you run it through a, a press. Oh, okay. Wow. It's, it's a it's basically an etching. Hmm. That takes some talent. For sure, I can imagine. But it's Absolutely. permanent. Permanent, permanent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so getting back to um, your photography a little bit, um, where's your favorite place to shoot? Is it your backyard or? Well, you know, a lot of times your closest backyard is probably the best one. So the place I, you know. 
Well, I was living in Big Cypress. That was my backyard. Mm-hmm. And now in Venice, uh, Mayaka is my state park is my backyard. Yeah, in the last year or so, I've seen a lot of stuff you've posted yeah. online from Mayaka, and that is on my list of things to do this summer. After I get back from, I'm doing a, a photo camping trip starting in Oregon and going to Washington and then down to California. I'll be gone for about three weeks, but sometime in August, I'm going to go and explore Mayaka for a couple of days. That's not enough time. It's you got to start somewhere. No, you know. No, <laughs> you pick a place and you say three weeks in it, or at least a week. It's perfect. It goes right along with our uh, Dry Tortugas yeah. uh, loggerhead key four weeks on the island. I was four weeks in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Well, I and can, I can appreciate that. I'm not sure my wife's going to let me play for that long, but I'll give it a try. That's a rule of thumb we can live by, though. I mean, I like that. I like that yeah. a lot. Well, yeah, we, we've learned that a week is a minimum any place because first you got to get a feeling for it. You have to have enough time to have good, good or bad weather and know where the light's going to be and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Like what month do you go to Yosemite? Right. You don't know. I know which one. It. I know which one it is. <laughs> you, well, absolutely. I, I agree. It's, you between, should. it's between mid April and mid May. Cool. It's spring. It's the best light because oh. the light goes down the Canyon. Okay, so it's following the sun. In the summertime, the doesn't, sun doesn't get up in the canyon until 10 o'clock. Hmm. And once, once it's that high, the, the quality yeah. is just yeah, not there. Yeah, kind of, kind of boring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, not really. In black and white, you can photograph. People ask me what's the best time of day to photograph. And the best time is when you're still breathing. <laughs> because you can find something anywhere in black and white, whether it's a close-up, Landscape, uh, clouds. I mean, <clears throat> the only problem you have to have is creativity. You're absolutely right. And my workaround for when I don't have light that I necessarily am in love with, um, I tend to, that's usually when I start to shoot with my infrared camera and think differently and start to go for the white foliage and the darker skies, similar to putting a red filter on in traditional black and white film. One of my uh, digital cameras I had converted to infrared, and I'm, I'm enjoying playing with that. I've been doing that a little bit up in Riverbend Park up in Jupiter and getting some really good results. I'm not sure. I'm not too excited about that. You can do enough enough with uh, in, in digital with your filters. Well, you're absolutely right. I actually did discover that um, getting home and having shot with my traditional, my digital camera without the infrared, that you're right, dialing in the filters, you can get very close to that look. But the first thing you have to do, you have to work on the color. Yeah. You have to imagine what you want to have in black and white. Then you manipulate the color, so when you transfer it, you get what you want. Absolutely. Um, People just take their color image and and convert it. No. No. No, You got to work on it. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Just you have to think for black and white and shoot for black and white when you're going to end up in black and white, especially right. in digital. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, in film too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. But in, at least in film, you're you're putting black and white film in your camera. Well, I'm uh, my uh, granddaughter is working on our uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram, helping us with that, mm-hmm. and and she brought one of my old photographs of me and. Uh, 
uh, Joshua Tree. And I was carrying my, my old camera, which was a uh, uh, Mamiya Press 23, two and a quarter, three and a quarter press camera. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, that was a neat camera. So about a month ago, I went and bought a couple more of them. So I'm going to start shooting that camera again. That's really kind of great. And I've discovered which which of the film cameras I love because as digital became so popular and everybody started buying digital and giving up on film, they're either putting their film cameras on eBay or they're selling them when they buy their digital cameras. So all the cameras that I wanted to play with when I was in college in 1984, 1985, and I I didn't think I would ever be able to afford them, you can buy a whole set for, you know, two, three lenses, a couple of backs and the body for a few hundred dollars, you know, and it's worth investing the time in to find out which one you really, really like. Well, that the Mamiya Press to me was at the uh, wide angle lens is 50 millimeters and it's a bygone design. Uh, it's, I have several pictures I, I sell to now where I took the in 1970, 69. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a fantastic. And the film I used was called Dandy Pan. Really? Yes. You stumped it was, me. It's one I've never heard of. It's an East German film. Uh, and then also I just bought my, when I was in college, I was doing architectural model photography. And I needed a wide-angle lens even for, you know, for the architectural models. And, if, and you really need a, retro, I mean a, a single lens reflex. And there wasn't anything in 1960. I don't think there was any wide-angle lens. 1961, Flectigon brought out a 20 millimeter retrofocus lens. I got the, I got one of the first ones in the country. Wow! And so that's how long I've been shooting wide-angle. And if I got I found one of those to buy the other day that'll that'll work on my uh, Fuji GFX. Oh, nifty! Yeah. So I'm, my first camera was a twin lens Yashica to, uh, 127. Oh, so the, the gray one, the 127 version, right. It was, it was uh, it's basically a 35 millimeter without the sprockets. Mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who uh, picked one up at a garage sale recently, and I, are, I have the, the 120 version, and she wanted to shoot with it. There's only like... Two film, two films right now that are spooled onto one twenty seven cartridge or not cartridges, spools that will fit in the camera, and then you get, I think it's eight shots on the roll. No, I think you get, I think you get twelve. I'm not sure. Uh, I know I'm, in the uh, bigger one, it's twelve. Yeah, Freestyle in California, mm-hmm. they have a Triax. They've Triax one twenty seven. One twenty seven Triax. Okay, next time Blanche needs film, I'm gonna check uh, out Freestyle. They have everything. If you were in black and white, you need to talk. You get to go on the internet and look up freestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm familiar with my. I've done a lot of work with B and H over the years, but I've done some stuff with freestyle in the past too. I try, like possibly can work with freestyle, because we need people that uh, uh, are carrying this weird stuff. Yeah. So we need to give them as much business as we can. Right to keep them around. And yeah. we need to buy from your local camera stores if you have one when we have them yeah that's just harder and harder to find we have one of the best ones in the country in Bradenton do, you, do we okay yeah. and there's a nice one in Delray too yep yes yeah, I've been to that because one. of the uh, photo sh- the workshops there yeah yeah yeah
So when we returned back home to the east coast of Florida last night, Shannon and I realized that we had a lot of material with Clyde. He was so generous with his time and his wisdom that we had over an hour's worth of material for the podcast. After talking about it for a little bit, we decided that we would split this interview up into a two-parter, and then we decided to end it right there with the plug to remind people to visit their local camera and photography stores. We'll pick it up again next week on Thursday with the second half of the interview where we talk more about the National Park Service. Look forward to you joining us. 